Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And big moment, big moment in time. We have our season grand finals coming up, which is sort of like a Worlds-esque tournament, but mostly like an extra pro tour for those folks who did well at the last three big tournaments, I guess would be a safe way to sum it up. It's probably closest to like the old Masters tours, right? I actually don't know specifically how they worked because I wasn't super involved at that point. But my understanding was that they were just like further pro tours for people who had done really well at pro tours. Yeah, and I I agree. But yeah, I mean, if it was before your time, I'm sure it's before a lot of (laughs) listeners' time too. (laughs) Very true, yes. Yeah, they used to have like a a Masters series event at every PT. And for people who had like a certain ratings threshold you can play in like an lcq for the masters and those things were definitely very cool and just just like a a spectacle to watch uh i i enjoyed them for like the short time they are around for the time that i was playing in pro tours and stuff and like i always wanted to play in one of those tournaments but i never got to was that the only way you could qualify was through the lcq no because there there was like maybe 24 slots or something or 32 slots, something like that. And then I think four slots were allocated to the LCQ. And who filled the other 28 or whatever slots? So before, back in my day, they had, instead of uh, levels, you know, like platinum, gold, silver, level six, level eight, that sort of stuff. Uh you, You got a yearly payout at the end of the year. That was, you know, the top N players. I think it was 50 or something just determined on your pro point standing. And okay. it was basically people who, you know, were kind of like in the the player of the year race or whatever. Interesting. I mean, it's wild that we're talking about a level where there were nowhere near as many magic players, nowhere near as much interest in the game. But this kind of sounds way more robust than the system we have right now as this PT. I mean, the the raw payout is good, like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's you know nice. I I don't want to look at two hundred fifty thousand dollars and be critical of it, but like the winner of this tournament will make significantly less than you did when you won your pro tour, right? And there's a lot of other considerations to this COVID era, not being an in person event, rapid changes, all that stuff. So again, I'm not trying to be ultra critical. It's just look at where we were, either three years ago, whenever it was, you won your PT or go back to when there was a master series event and look at where we are now. And it's, it's weird considering the growth that magic has seen. Well, I mean, to be fair, there was way less money in the master's era. It, w- it was very like TRGR where if you were at the okay. top, yeah. you, you, you were making money, but like there was effectively like no rewards for like a gold level pro, right? It's like you could chain right. invites, but you know, you're you're winning like PTQs and getting two hundred and fifty dollars as a travel stipend, or winning a GP and getting like two thousand dollars or something like it, or I guess it was like sixteen hundred or something back then. You know, it, was, it yeah. was like it was a complete joke, and it was also very hard for people to grind for an end of the year payout because it meant that you know you weren't getting appearance fees for each pro tour and flights to each pro tour. You know, you had to pay a lot of money up front to get an end of the year payout, so. It, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good system. I understand that, you know, this this has like a lot of similarities and you can make a a lot of, you know, similar grievances or whatever. But yeah, there's a lot of things going on. You know, I don't know if this type of tournament structure would be happening if, you know, 
COVID and quarantine and stuff like that were not going on. Yeah, we, um, we assume not. We assume it looks like a more traditional worlds type thing, I think. Yeah, and the money for this is not as much as winning an old school pro tour. And but like the, the money now is going into a lot of different areas. And yeah. they, they also, you know, cut the monetary payout, right? So I don't know. I feel like if, if things get back to normal, if and when, then maybe the money goes up, but you know, maybe they just keep trying running it as is without saying anything and hope that no one catches on. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's hard to get money back once you lose it. I'll just say that from experience. So. I know that's, that's, that's what I'm scared of. It's, it's not like vaccines going to happen. Everything's going to be fine. And then suddenly Watsy's just like, Oh yeah, about that $2 million that we took out. It's back. It's like, no, nah, right. that's, we're probably going to have to complain about that before that happens, but yeah, well, we'll see what, how that goes when the time gets here. I guess there's other more pressing concerns before we can even get to that point. We need it to be safe to play magic again. And then we'll right. worry about whether or not there's money being made when we play magic again. Dude, at that point, I am not even going to care. And like, granted, true. I'm, I'm I, not, re- I'm not really interacting in the system, but you know, if I can travel and hug my friends, I mean, yep. I'm, I'm not going to complain. Yeah, and that's what I mean about it could be hard to get this money back because we're all going to be so happy to play Magic that the first GP, if it's still a GP at that point, whatever it is, is going to attract thousands and thousands of people. And I I hope they are prepared for that and uh, make it an event and a spectacle and and something really special. Dude, if it's it's safe, I don't care where it is. I'm going to go. Agreed. Same. You're going to go? Yeah. All right, man. Uh, this is. I feel like you is, doubt me. I I went to magic tournaments before. I understand I didn't go as many as you did, but like I, I occasionally showed up. Verbal's binding. That's all I'm saying. All right, I'm I'm in. I look. I miss magic. I I loved playing magic tournaments under the right circumstances. I liked hanging out with my friends. I mean, the the competition aspect was always secondary to me. I never banked a lot on my finishes. I was never really trying to train anything together, but I still love the experience of competing for something and seeing all these people I only got to see once in a while. And some of that ebbed and flowed over time. It it really depended a lot on how many of my friends were participating with the system in a given time. If I was showing up at a GP and everyone I knew was there, then it was a blast and things started to feel a little different towards the end. Maybe, you know, that's fault of mine, partly because I moved across the country. So I'm on the West Coast, not the East Coast anymore. We had friends though, and like I, I tried to introduce you to some people and and make it funner. You know, it's like, and, and you did a great job of that, and that's what is really sparking. Like, I am I am ready to go to another event, see all these new people I've met, and also a bunch of the old people I knew because I think a lot of people will show up for this event, like regardless yeah. of their present engagement level. I'm I'm probably I'm going to be honest. I'm probably not going to play in any of the tournaments. I'm just I'm just going to go and hang out and talk to people because that is by far the thing that I'm missing the most right now. Yeah, very reasonable approach. And again, I don't think you'll be alone in that. I think people just want to get in the same room with their friends again. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I have like a couple boxes of Battle Bond upstairs. Like we, we can just do stuff like that or like Canadian Highlander or whatever. Um, but mm, I said I'm, I'm missing a good old-fashioned team draft right now. That yeah. To me, that was like the era of GPs and PTs was when team drafting was a big thing. And it's always the part I will look back on most fondly. So getting together with a bunch of old-school people to do a team draft in a convention hall sounds like the best time ever right now. And I, I'm laughing at myself saying that because if I yeah. go back 10 years ago, uh, it often was not the best time ever. But right now, <laughs> I would take it. Yeah, ten years ago, it was. It's so funny uh, how our our brain just like autocorrects for these things, right? Because it's like we remember it fondly as like the best of times, but also you look back at 
look back at it logically and you're like, no, this was the worst of times, you know, like brain, what the hell are you talking about? You know, but it was fun and there was a lot of camaraderie and stuff like that. And we talk about the shared experience and everything and and all of that played into it. So I, I get it completely, man. Yeah. And it's funny that we started off this discussion with some of that, where I was talking about the master series and how there was so much more back then, but you very aptly pointed out that there were tons of problems with that as well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this system is what it is. Uh, right now we have a big tournament coming up this weekend, which obviously doesn't matter for a lot of people. Only 32 people are qualified, but it is historic and standard, which means that the metagames for both of these formats are going to be like heavily decided by the results from this tournament, which is kind of weird because of the fact that it's only a 32-person tournament and the deck lists are sort of inbred because you can expect there to be a lot of Omnath in both formats. And then how do people react once they have that knowledge? And basically these are not going to be great decks to be playing on ladder or in open tournaments, you know, like these, these decks are tailor-made to beat up on a very, very specific metagame. I think that the sooner players can wrap their head around the idea that tournament deck does not equal ladder deck, not not only this tournament, but any tournament, they will be far better off. And I see a lot of things which are played to high mythic rankings, which you couldn't pay me to register in a tournament. And that's not, I, I'm not trashing those decks. It's just you're trying to accomplish a very different goal when you're trying to climb the ladder. It's not the same as targeting a specific winner's metagame because it's not only about targeting the metagame. If mono black is... of the field, but it can never win a game against 99% of the field. You don't care. You can basically ignore that deck, play the lottery. As long as you don't get paired against it in round one, you'll never see it again for the rest of the tournament. So there's a whole bunch of little calculations like that that go on throughout the course of a tournament that inform deck choices. And I would also mention for this event, open deck list is a huge deal too. I mean, just go back to the most recent Mythic Invitational. Luis Salvato played Rakdos Rakdos Arcanist or Rakdos Pyromancer, whatever you want to call it. A deck I was personally very high on, but has a real issue in that if your opponent sideboards in a Leyline of the Void against you, you're kind of buried and you don't really have any means to play successful games against it. You can take some really dramatic steps, but you have to be sure that they are playing specifically Leyline of the Void before you impact your deck so dramatically. And Luis figured that out and played the deck, which I, I don't think was the best choice for ladder because you had to deal with that experience. But in person, you didn't have to deal with that at all. And Luis was able to just bring in his Hazarets, play that game plan. And anytime he knew they didn't have Leyline in their deck, the coast was clear. You didn't have to hedge. You didn't have to worry as my deck just completely shut down. You just knew immediately. And that's a big difference to the, to the point where Luis said he wouldn't have played the deck if it wasn't open deckless. And that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I get that a lot. I, it's it's also funny because that changed now, right? You just have Feed the Swarm now. <laughs> so, right, right. a yeah, little all, outdated, but yeah, a good example pro- regardless. Yeah, it is, it is. Uh, but yeah, now all your problems are solved. It's great. Deck is awesome. Right. But yeah, like that that changes things for sure. And I, I, I do want to stress that while maybe these decks are not optimal for ladder, like you can still play them and be successful. Uh, it's just that you might want to take a piece of what makes a deck successful in a tournament like this and then alter that slightly to have best results on ladder. You know, like I I saw uh, Kowalski, for example, like, you know, in in his tweet where he posted his deck list, he also posted his win rates on ladder and his win rates were very good. So 
uh, even with him not having any love struck beasts in his adventure deck, for example, like he was still putting up very good numbers. And that's not something I would necessarily recommend for a ladder or for an open tournament, but you know, like you, you can still play those decks and be successful. It's just maybe not the optimal thing that you should be doing. Yeah. I think things go a lot better in this direction. You're way safer taking a good tournament deck and bring it to the ladder than you are taking a good ladder deck and bringing it to a tournament. But yeah. there, like you said, still modifications to be made. Yep, absolutely. So there are, there are differences and, you know, things that you have to be cognizant of before you like copy paste a deck list or whatever. The important thing that we're going to be trying to figure out is whether or not the Euro ban impacted standard enough to the point where Omnath is dominant or not. And then maybe even like what the best version of Omnath is, you know, maybe the one that like dominates the mirror or whatever. And then on the historic side of things, it's just like how how good is Omnath in general in historic? Because we haven't had a major tournament since that card was released. And it went from being all about like, you know, goblins and Jund collected company sacrifice decks and, and stuff like that to, well, now just a lot of the competitors are registering Omnath. I hate to spoil this for you. I know you're excited to watch the tournament this weekend, but uh, the answer to your second question is that Omnath is good, <laughs> like very good, like messed up good. And it continues to be. And if, if you have the right stuff, for sure. Y- Yasharn is a card that's showing up in a, in a lot of the list that solves yeah. a lot of the problems against the sacrifice matchup and stuff like that. And when, when I first started uh, trying to port the deck into historic, I had a lot of issues with stuff like that until I found like Yasharn and all, all the, cards that you could have access to that just solved all your problems. So yeah, I mean, a week ago or whatever for what we play on Star City, I was the only one that suggested that people actually register Omnath. And I was like, is is this not good? Like I don't I don't understand. It seems to be quite good to me. And then yeah, the results from this tournament or not results, but like the deck list people submitted start rolling in and just an overwhelming majority of people are playing Omnath. Yeah. So I we should mention we don't have deck lists yet in official form, but our friend DT Lurch has been accumulating a little spreadsheet of everyone who reveals their deck lists over on Twitter. And we're kind of using that. It's about, what would you say, 65, 70% complete at this point? Um, this, this looks like nine Omnaths in historic out of 19. So okay. there, there are 19 of the players who have their, their decks filled in. 19 of um, 32. Yeah, yeah. But not all of them are deckless. It's just like someone saying like what they registered maybe. But a lot of a lot of the competitors have actually just tweeted their deckless at this point because they're locked in, they already submitted, and deckless are going to be open anyway. So you, you give like the competitors maybe like a few days to like test against your specific deck if you actually cared. But I, I think that that's not really a big issue. Yeah, people were kind of all over the place on this. Some people shocked that competitors were willing to just put their deck lists out there. In a small field tournament against players of this caliber, I literally think if your goal going into the tournament is to maximize your income, then you should tweet your deck list because the value of you sharing your information is worth more than the value you get from keeping it secret. Uh, and I mean, that's a lesson that you've embraced for a long time now, you know, going back to your recent Pro Tour run, you were in our Patreon sharing all of your stuff. Uh, you know, everyone in the world could have had your Rakdos Pyromancer list that you played to second place at that PT. It was it was up there. I saw it. A few yeah. people took it. 
Yeah, I mean, even even before then, uh, I I was usually pretty free with information, and it, it bit me a couple times, right? It's like, oh, I played sure. someone good playing my seventy five, or they know my seventy five, and I've talked to them about the formats. So they know how to sideboard against me and stuff like that. I even I, <laughs> I remember a tournament I played against Brian Demars, and he showed me like how he sideboarded after I beat him, and I just like walked him through the matchup and like what was important and how he should sideboard, and then he beat me in top eight using that strategy. There you go. You know, so you have to be a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, stuff like that comes back to bite me. It was, it was like my, my deck was uh, the five color bring to light deck, like the super fair, like siege rhino in standard version. Okay. And he was playing a Tarka red and you like sideboarded out dragon fodders. And it's like, no, I need to like spot removal, kill every single creature you play. So like, that's your best card. And oh, just, so you are the reason my pro tour was ruined. Thanks for that. Great. Uh, why is that? Because we had, this is the, landfall deck it's it's not just a tarka red right yes yeah yeah, yeah so we have oh, that deck because, because he won the tournament right he won he goes on to win the tournament we had yeah. that deck for like a week and a half and the win rates we were putting up against the expected format were like the most preposterous win rates i've ever seen like 80 percent win rates against the entire field and we're just like well we're uh, going to put a lot of people on the top of this pro tour. Turns out other people had it too. So maybe that was a little, you know, full of ourselves, but whatever. We, we had a really exciting deck that it didn't seem too many people were on. And then that tournament gets won by green, red landfall. And now everyone shows up with what's the white sideboard card. It's like destroy a red creature and gain two life surge of righteousness. Yep. Yeah. And just yeah, like a dude. bunch of spot removal in general, everyone was playing sorcery speed removal. You were literally just free rolling the matchup. It was so easy. Right. Yeah. Dude, the butterfly effect is so real, right? Because it's like, imagine imagine I win the tournament and people yeah. are like, oh, bring the light. Show bring the light. Or whatever. Yeah, we crush that tournament. <laughs> oh, man. It, yeah, it's it's really funny because our team, a lot of people on our team ended up playing Landfall 2. And I ended up playing like some Mardu Dragons Kibler pile. Mm-hmm. But that, yeah, that, that PT could have been way different depending on a few different things like majors also top eight at that open that was like a week or two before the pt with uh green white when yep. no no one was talking about green white and then yep. like green white was a big part of that field too so really interesting field let's just talk about magic from from like five years ago Can we, we just, just spent hours talking about these tournaments that i was very invested in and uh for for once in my life i was able to put aside enough of my other commitments and actually care about these things well, it's, it's funny because our, our course is like kind of aligned in that era, right? Like Origins was my first pro tour after no longer working for Wizards. Yep. And that was the one that you had your deep run in, which queued you for B for Z and stuff like that. So I don't know. We, we should have been working together, but you were, you were too big timey working with Hall of Famers. So. Oh my God. Get <laughs> that was literally nothing to do with it. The people I was working with was a collection of people who were in New York City, like myself, and were too busy to spend any real time like getting together and doing typical playtesting stuff. So we just sent each other a bunch of emails while we were supposed to be at work. And that was the extent of our preparation process. And then I played a bunch of games against myself on the subway. That's how I prepared. Nice. Dude, some people listen to audiobooks or whatever, but you're just double-fisted testing. Were, were you? Did you have two decks, or were you on Apprentice? Uh, I was on Apprentice. Nice, nice. Or I, maybe I don't think it was Apprentice at that point. Whatever the other one is, but yeah, Workstation or Cockatrice or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> God, how did we even get on this tangent? I don't know. Anyway, uh, DT Lurch compiling results. Shout out to DT Lurch. It is beneficial in the long game if you share your information. I agree with that. 
I think there are, you know, some people who don't really see the value in that, which is understandable. You know, if, if you're not like being a full-time content creator or whatever, then maybe it doesn't really matter that much whether or not your tweets get impressions, but yeah. I think there's value in identifying yourself as like a collaborative person though. Like just making the, I don't know. One of the worst things you can do in a magic relationship with me, I guess, is like withhold information when we've previously done stuff together. Like if we're compiling things back and forth and we're bouncing ideas off each other. And then at some point you're just like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep this deck secret now. I'm like, okay, well, I'm never speaking to you again. Like, this is a very easy decision for me. We've we've worked on this together. I am way more inclined to just give people information because one, it could help them. Two, whatever I am handing them is just as likely to help me. That's what I found more than anything else is that the yeah. things you give away, you get just as much return from it. Yeah. I, if you're willing to like check back in with the person or they're willing to check back in with you and give feedback and everything, obviously that's super helpful. Right. If someone takes one of these decks onto the ladder and figures out a difficult matchup for you, I mean, it's not very likely that happens, but it's possible. Well, I I mean, either they figure it out or they're just like, well, I had to make these changes because of, you know, this thing kept happening, like this matchup was tough or the situation kept coming up, you know, like anytime you get feedback from people is super helpful. And I I think that that matters a lot more when, you know, maybe the group is super small, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you get like a 20 person testing group, then everyone has like so much different experiences and they're all yelling different things. And they're like starting from different points of knowledge with the archetype and stuff like that. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta be able to filter that information for sure, but it's definitely helpful. Oh, that's a huge part of magic success. Just good filtration mechanisms. Yeah. So we talked about historic a little bit, but do you want to actually uh, start with standard? Sure. That seems like the appropriate order to go through this. Okay. So my experience in the last week or so has been the Uro ban did some stuff. It moved the needle a little bit, but mostly Omnath was still very, very good. And then the Four Color Adventures deck came out, and that seemed like a thing that was like both better against aggro and mid-range and control and the mirror match. So it was like, all right, well, maybe this is just the thing that you should be doing. And nothing I tried could really hold up to it. And then there were tournaments like uh, the Red Bull Untapped qualifier and various Magic Online results where very few people were having success with Omnath. And I was like, well, maybe I'm just wrong. And then the decklist for this tournament started coming out and just like everyone's playing Omnath, the vast majority are playing the Adventures version And this like paints the picture of the format that I had a week ago, but was starting to deteriorate when all these other tournament results were coming in. So like, what do you make of that? I have a theory, just a theory. And, you know, maybe you'll want to disprove it. But I think that the focal point of this past weekend and the events we have seen to this point was the Omnath ramp deck. And again, we talked last week a little bit about treating Omnath like a monolith. And it's something that, again, I don't think it was purposeful when you were doing this discussion, but like you said, there were no Omnath decks doing well. And that might have been true. You just peruse the events and you don't see Omnath anywhere. But I think there was something going on below the surface. And that's, there was too much representation for Omnath Ramp, which actually was legitimately weakened by the Uro ban. There's such an important part of the gameplay that came 
from Uro when you're just trying to accelerate to this huge end game because you can give up a bunch of resources and fail at hitting that endpoint if Uro is always going to bail you out. It's it's such a good catch-all for the deck. That means you have no fail state anymore. Because when your fail state is Uro, that beats a ton of different decks. To say nothing of life gain, which I think was like a pretty secondary consideration in the end, it was more the sticking power that Uro gave the ramp decks. However, the four color adventures decks didn't need that sticking power because they had a better plan. They actually had two better plans. They had both Edgewall Innkeeper as a huge source of card advantage and Lucky Clover, which I hate to say I told you so, but there were some people who didn't understand why I was concerned about Lucky Clover in the new format. And if you've played this format, I think it's pretty clear to you. Lucky Clover is a messed up magic card that snowballs advantages against specific decks and squeezes off a huge portion of the metagame because it's it's an outsized engine. It can take up a lot of air in the room because its interactions when it gets going are so much better than anything you could theoretically do short of maybe Omnath Ramp and doing like Genesis Ultimatum stuff. But like I said, that's now being exploited, opening up even more space for this Four Color Adventures deck. Uh, I, I think that was the bad matchup for Four Colors four color adventures previously it was four color omnath ramp and as that deck disappears from the format and rightly so it might be that adventures is just the broken version of this deck that we should have been playing all along because i saw some results from tournaments that suggested that it had no negative matchups like one of those beautiful matchup grids that we've all gotten very used to seeing with all the the colored boxes this is green. It was green. It was green across. I I will tell you, I don't think I've ever seen that in any of this era where we've started defaulting to this data visualization. I've never seen just a straight green row. And in this case, Adventures put up that straight green row. Now, I will say, if the focus was on ramp, you can understand why Adventures was able to succeed because they're not the same deck. You need very different answers. You need to make sure you're managing Lucky Clovers. You need real plans against that. And if last week people just didn't do that, and that's why Four Colored Adventures did so well, maybe there's still some churn to be seen in this format. You know, some really smart adaptations that we'll talk about as we go through this, but you're starting to see the better players account for Lucky Clover. Is that enough to hold this deck down? I have no idea. My instinct is no, just on raw power, but I guess this tournament's going to tell us. Yeah, once the Four Color Adventures deck popped up and I started playing against it a bunch. I went back to the drawing board and one of the frustrating things for me was that there weren't a lot of ways to actually interact with it. And it, I mean, it's, it's two mana, it's low opportunity cost to just put it in your deck. You know, like the rest of your deck is still fine. Uh, even if you don't draw Clover, it's only two mana, which is super cheap for an engine card. And so many main decks just like can't get rid of it. And the sideboard cards to fight it are just not very good either. And that was one of the frustrating things for me where it's like, okay, we have this thing that is clearly an issue. Well, we'll just look at the card pool, right? And we'll like find answers. And I mean, a lot of the answers were like Embereth Shield Breaker, which is fine, but uh, you know, pigeonholes you into a specific archetype or it's a thing that can be a potential mirror breaker because it works well with Clover to break up their two Clovers. Uh, or you play white because Skyclave Apparition is a main deckable card that can actually get rid of it. And does it, you know, not in like a mana positive way. I mean, you're like paying an extra one mana than they did to get a, a 2-2, which is is solid in a lot of those decks. But like the white cards for the most part are just pretty bad. The problem for me was finding decks that you could actually put Apparition into. Yep. After uh, looking at the Red Bull results... So Omnath Ramp 
won 32% of its matches. And Omnath Adventures in that tournament that was agro-invested won 58%. There you go. Yeah, so if you have watched my rantings on Magic over the past week or so, you know I have been obsessed with Winota decks. I haven't had any breakthroughs. I don't think anyone should be playing Winota at this tournament. But the reason I got down this path, like I played off as, oh, this is just like the thing I'm into. It's kind of my obsession for the moment. But it's purposeful. There's a reason I got here. And it's because I'm like, what do I do? against Lucky Clover. How do I find good answers? And everything I found was in white. It was Skyclave Apparition. I am having success against the Clover decks with like uh, Magistrate and Archon of Justice. The What is it? Dranith Magistrate, where you can't cast cards from anywhere besides your hand. Yeah, Dranith Magistrate and Archon of Emeria. Archon of Emeria, thank you. Archon of Justice is a very old magic card. Archon I, of want, I want a GP with that card. That's the 4-4 flyer that when it dies, it exiles something? Yeah. Yeah, you play it in five-color control? Yeah, block constructed, I, baby. Yeah, I, I think I remember playing that deck on like Moto. Anyway, I went down this road because I was looking for the good answers to Lucky Clover, and they don't exist in the colors that are primarily being played. Stuff like Wilt, Shredding Tails, even Shieldbreaker, like you mentioned, they all feel inadequate. You never feel like you're pulling ahead by answering things that way. So I wanted to answer it by getting onto the battlefield with Apparition and the other creatures. And it works. I mean, decks have other flaws, but... You can understand their appeal in that scenario. But the rest of the format, I don't know what you're supposed to do against this. Like People are insisting you can play things like Rakdos or Demir. No. No, you cannot. You cannot do these things against Lucky Clover. It will kill you. I don't understand how anyone is coming to these conclusions. So I think I think Rakdos is fine because they have a lot of kind of like sideways ways to attack. Uh, two of the Rakdos decks that were registered in this tournament one is Michael Jacobs and the other is Sabana Fishes. And MJ has uh, main deck Agonizing Remorse, which is obviously like a, a pretty miserable magic card or whatever. But like that with Croxa, you know, you kind of get to disrupt them a little bit. And then Hibana uh, Fishes deck has four main deck duress, which I actually like a lot. Those are nice concessions to what is otherwise a very bad matchup, though. I mean, I, I think if you right. looked at the matchup data from this past week, Rakdos Escape looked really good. And I, I I do like the deck. I've played it a bunch. It reminds me of Magic from 2016, which I'm really into right now. But against anything that is not specifically four-color adventures, I love the deck. I, I mean, I think it's probably favored in most other matchups. The problem is specifically four-color adventures, which I think is by far your worst matchup. Yeah, it's funny too, because so like Batu Tinha won the standard challenge on Magic Online last weekend with Rakdos and yep. You know, it's been picking up popularity, putting in good results and everything. And MJ's tweet about the decks that he registered mentions that he's just going to like pretend he doesn't have a bad Omnath matchup. And it's like, well, you know, you might be in some trouble, buddy. But I, I think Rakdos doing well is kind of like the epitome of what I'm talking about with the format, where if people are not playing Omnath or, you know, specifically the Adventures version or, you know, not tuning them to beat all the aggro decks that are showing up and stuff like that, then a deck like Rakdos is going to do really well. And when a deck like Rakdos that has a pretty bad Omnath deck starts dominating, then I'm just like, well, I don't know, maybe Omnath is bad, right? Like, maybe that is what Rakdos succeeding means. So I'm, I'm just 
very confused. <laughs> like if maybe, maybe like both MJ and Habana fish are going to like top four of the tournament and Rakdos is going to look incredible and, and whatever, like Crocs is the new Uro or whatever. I don't know. Look, anything's possible. And I'm, I'm going to be I, confused I, regardless. Right. I actually meant to say prior to starting our discussion here is that I would actually encourage people who are participating in this event not to listen to this podcast right now because I just don't think we can have like a really positive effect on your mental state, no matter what we say about what you've chosen to do here. Like if we're hyping you up and things start to go wrong, that kind of seems like it could be an impact. And if we are saying we don't like the deck choice, then that could be a little bit of a self-defeating prophecy that creeps its way into your head. So I I would just skip this for the time being. Like, I don't think you should be listening to us. These, dude, you're underselling the competitors, man. Like they know their deck lists are in, it's set. This is not their first rodeo. They, in order to qualify for this tournament, they had to do well in like, you know, some combination of the last three events, right? So they they know what's up. I'm pretty sure like you can submit a deck and then you just know that it's over and done with. There's there's nothing you can do. All, all you can do is like sit down and play your matches, you know? And like, I, I don't think us saying anything on, on the podcast is like going to affect their mental state one way or the other, you know? Okay. L- let me ask you this question then. Maybe I'll be surprised by the answer. I'm doing this podcast with not you. I'm doing it with someone else and you are a competitor in this event. Do you think if we, me and my new co-host, we sat here and we're just like, I don't know what Jerry's thinking. This has to be a poor decision. It doesn't really make sense giving the metagame trends. You think it would have zero effect on you? I mean, it, so it wouldn't have zero assume, effect. Assume you respect our opinion. Like that's maybe that's right. step one. Maybe we have to assume these people respect what we're saying, but just, just make that assumption for me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my... Typical response to something like that is like, you know, do I think that this person has good points? Do I think that they are missing out on some information that that I have as a result of, you know, spending a couple weeks testing for this tournament or whatever? And if that's the case, I mean, maybe hit them up on social media and have a discussion with them and just be like, hey, this is the thing that I think that you're missing out on or whatever. And, and that's if you care to like, you know, write that wrong. Sure. But say you listen to the podcast and you're just like, no one's going to play Omnath. I'm going to register Rectives. It's going to be great. And then you see that the field is like all Omnath and we're like poo-pooing that as a choice or whatever. Then I, I think the feel bad already sets in when you see the deck list, right? It's not as a result sure. of like what sure. us as Captain Hindsight are now saying. But also, like I said, MJ and... Havana Fish both did the same thing where they're playing like more disruption in their main deck to try and fight these Omnath decks, right? Like they know that this is going to be a thing that they have to deal with and they chose to register Rakdos. It's possible that their their results are, you know, far better against it than Wistock Rakdos, which I'm willing to believe, you know? And maybe you don't think that the field's going to be like 60% Omnath. Maybe you thought it was going to be like 30 or 40 and now it's maybe like a little bit worse. Uh, at least from what we've seen, like we haven't seen the rest of the decks, right? So right. what if everyone else in the tournament played rogues or something? Like you just look like a genius and you feel great well, about it. Look, I, but I think that's a good point. Like w- which are you more inclined to put on social media? The yeah. stock for Color Adventures list or the absolutely out there bonkers deck that you found at the last second uh, and you don't want people to have extra time to think about and prepare for? Yeah, that, that was a, a point that I was going to make, too, as I was, like, talking through it. It's like, well, maybe the people who didn't share their decks are not playing Omnath, or at least, like, a big portion of them. Or maybe they're weird Omnath decks, you know? 
And I agree with you that for the most part, like sharing your deck list early, it does give people the ability to like get reps in with it, like test against your specific list and figure out a sideboard strategy and stuff like that. I also don't think a lot of people are going to be doing that. And I think it's just, I think it's, that's overstated. And I also think that you are underselling these competitors abilities to like sit down and look at your deck list and be able to make plans and like figure out how to play against it too. So I agree that you can you can just share your deck and it'll be fine, you know. No, I'm I'm right there with you. I also appreciate the fact that you went as far as to talk about the innovations that both High Banana Fish and MJ made to the Rakdos deck because again, treating decks like a monolith, like Rakdos Escape doesn't have to be the same thing in every instance and it's quite clear in this instance it's not and I know the value of small changes, especially when it comes to specifically duress. This is a move I made during the middle of the Throne of Eldraine standard season where I started playing duress main deck in my Jun Sacrifice deck when the meta got really hostile. And it fixed all the matchups I was having problems with. Like sometimes that's all it takes. So I I believe it. I, I think this is something you can successfully do. Um, and we'll have to see if they did in fact nail it here with a little bit more targeted discard. Dude, you could have just told me her screen name was High Banana Fish. I didn't realize that. I, I just like skipped out of a syllable. I've I've read it as Hibana Fish for like, I don't know, a year or whatever. <laughs> um, I don't know that I realized you were doing that. Look, there's a lot of weird reading and auditory processing things that go on in my brain. So asking me to correct your pronunciation or grammar is not going to be successful in most instances. High Banana Fish. Got it. Now I'm concerned that I read it wrong, but now no, triple and quadruple reading it, I'm pretty confident it is high banana fish. No, you read you read it right. I just I actually first went, time for everything. I, I went and actually read however many syllables it is, and I was like, "Yep, I'm wrong. Great." <laughs> oh, my brain! My brain is something else. Anyway, I don't know. I'm I'm interested to try duress certainly instead of agonizing remorse. I think that that's that's probably a better call like obviously you're gonna have a decent amount of situations where you just completely whiff but a lot of the decks have so many targets that i i think that duress is stronger because it's one mana and like you know playing more spells in your deck for magmatic channeler and even just like having more cheap cards for things like croxa and stuff like all of that makes sense and I, there there was an era where duress was a main deck card you know maybe it was like 15 years ago or something 20 years ago and i think that we've mostly shied away from doing that but i think that this and well, look at this field though i mean yeah it, it sort of tracks obviously there's some problems with adventures where most of their spells are creatures and you have to really get the card you care about for duress to be really good uh but escape to the wilds and lucky clover is how their deck functions so controlling those two cards just doing that might be enough right I mean, those are the best two cards against your deck for sure. Yep. And Duress is one mana. And if it, it gets to a point where, you know, if, if they had that card, they would have played it or Duress is not very useful. Like it's still a card for your graveyard and yep. it's a thing that you can pitch to Channeler. Like it's yep. it's really not that bad. The Rakdos decks have access to like so many resources every game. I, I just don't even think that it's like a big deal. That's a great point. Yeah, they don't function like a typical deck. And in many instances, like pay one mana, put a card in your graveyard is a card you will be happy to find. So, yeah, a lot of the time you're just like, I wish I had a spike field hazard so I could yep. dome my opponent, you know, just to put a card in my graveyard. So, no, it, it does come up quite often. Yeah. Uh, 
high banana fishes decks were two of my favorite decks that I've I've seen so far. Maybe maybe just downright the the two favorites. I like them both a lot. Yeah, this is a great looking Rakdos list. Uh, Azorius Control. I am a little skeptical of its place in the format. Uh, Me too. I, I like this list quite a bit, but I don't know. I, I played a lot of Azorius Control, honestly, to pretty good results, but. It, it just feels like a step behind and like I was convincing myself the whole time. But again, smart innovations here. Stuff like main deck Grafdigger's Cage, I really, really like. Yep. Uh, I'm picking up a few of these double-faced modal cards. So on the whole, I, I would not be surprised to see how Banana Fish do very well in this tournament. But my favorite list is a different list. Oh, it's Emma's list, isn't it? It's Emma's list. Yeah. And I, I think, look, if you've paid attention on Twitter, you've probably seen some people who... I think would identify themselves as deck builders heaping praise on this deck. And there's a very good reason for that. Like this is such a smart, clean metagame targeted, brilliant build of this gruel adventures deck. I I have no idea what the matchup percentages are like. I can't just estimate that looking at it, but I do know a well-built deck when I see one. And this is a hundred percent that everything about it is perfect. The mana counts are great. You have loads of lands to power up your landfall creatures like Brushfire elemental. You have access to diverse game plans. Like you can kind of shift into this mid range ish type role on the back of primal might shatter skull smashing and bone crusher giant that works. And then there's the four gem razors in the main deck accounting for lucky clover. Here's a card. We talked about really bad answers. For Lucky Clover. Well, this is not a bad answer, especially when you're playing it in conjunction with Stone Coil Serpent and Brushfire Elemental, where those cards just go bonkers when you pair them up with Gem Razor. So I am so excited to see this deck in action. Yeah, Gem Razor, like Skyclave Apparition, was the other one where it's like, okay, this is solid. This is good enough to main deck. It's not it's not as widely applicable as apparition is but it's still very solid and there are a lot of synergies inherent in a lot of these decks and and i'm working on my article for the week right now and i'm also heaping praise on emma's build of this deck because she took basically the best parts of gruel adventures which was already a winning deck and mono green aggro which was a solid deck and like kind of put them together and specifically metagamed for this tournament and i i think she just did an excellent job Agreed. And I will be very disappointed if things don't break well, because deck building like this should 100% be rewarded. Uh, it's, it just looks fantastic. I, I am looking at it in front of me right now, and it has even the beautiful synergy of just like well-sorted columns and twos and fours. <laughs> right, right. And it, it's just like a work of art, a really beautiful looking deck. Uh, and I, I hope it produces results in line with how efficiently built it is. Yeah, I was watching uh, Strosky stream this a little bit last night, too, once uh, Emma made this post, or at least, you know, like, quote tweeted Autumn's post. And mm-hmm. it, it looked solid. It looked good. I, I didn't stick around long enough to see what Strosky's, like, you know, overall reaction to it was or whatever, but he was smashing people. Yeah, it just accounts for everything. Like, even things like the main deck scavenging news, if you are concerned about Rakdos showing up in large numbers, scavenging news has been one of my best cards against them. Again, I've been playing mostly Winota, but there's a version of Winota that somehow has scavenging news in it. Don't ask. Uh, but it, <laughs> Do you have gilded it has goose? been the best card a lot of the times. Are you gilded goosing? No, no gooses. Uh, it's like a, a counters-ish take on the archetype. Okay, and, uh, I, I like that still, but... I'm, I'm also been, interested in Goose Winota. It's been good. I, I win a lot with my Winota decks. And like, 
I am past the point of hyping anything up because I I know what the broken thing is. And when there's a broken thing, I don't want to be the person saying, this thing is actually really good. No, there's a broken thing. Like, Go pay attention to that. But if you're interested in tier two, maybe tier 2.5, tier three stuff, I think there's good decks that can target the right metagame. Uh, it doesn't feel good, though, when you you lose two creatures to a Bone Crusher Giant pumped up by Lucky Clover. That will never feel good. There's no way to fix that. I promise you. Even when you're trying to attack and your two drop gets killed by Bone Crusher and then they play a 4-3 and the, their hand is still full, that also feels miserable. Yes. Yeah, not a lot you can do about that. One of the things that I'm harping on in my article is being anti-Bone Crusher, or at least like anti-Stomp. And Smart. Rakdos does a pretty good job of this, uh, just by playing Magmatic, Magmatic Channeler on two. It's just one of the very few three toughness things. And I think the other way to get around it is to like go wide pretty quickly, which when you have a one drop, that's a must kill, like Edgewall Innkeeper in the Rule Adventures decks, then that's another way to kind of mitigate it because a lot of the Bone Crusher decks, you know, don't don't have an unlimited supply of spot removal. So if if they have to kill your one drop, then it means your two drop lives and things kind of snowball from there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Rakdos does a better job of ignoring uh, Bone Crusher than really any other deck. And MJ even went a step further and just like cut a bunch of the Meyer Tritons from the list. Sure. And then this Gruel deck has a bunch of like five fives for three mana. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking very optimistically. There we go. That's the word. Optimistically for... Sure, there's some vulnerabilities too. For, for Mammoth, right? And yeah, you know, like you need a 1-1 to attack a Lovestruck Beast or whatever. But like having five fives that can attack through it on the way down is also really good. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It, it, it's very smart. Uh, also not mentioned when we talked about Gemraiser is, you know, so we get to look at this in retrospect, but going into this weekend, or I should say the results of this past weekend, put Rogues among the top decks. Rogues had a really strong performance in multiple tournaments, kind of to my surprise. Uh, I don't think all that highly of stock Rogues list. I think there's space to evolve Rogues, but the Zareth San tap out style stuff I've seen has not impressed me. Yeah. But still it had a really big weekend and gem raiser is points there as well. I don't know. I, I like rogues, but the list for rogues that I would advocate for kind of changes daily because I, I think sure. that that's, that's the one deck in the format where just like tuning and your overall game plan and your sideboarding plans all have to change as the metagame changes. And, you know, new things tick up because the, the card, you don't have the ability to survive just on card quality. Right. So when Demir Control started seeing play and like Grixis and some of these Rakdos decks, then the move to playing into the story made a lot of sense to me. And I'm not yep. sure what version I actually would have registered for this tournament, but I, I definitely enjoy the end of the story, like more counterspell heavy ones in general. I, I think maybe you could look at some duresses here as well. It seems like a good piece of you just have problems that you yeah. can't answer as rogues and it, it's a very clean out to that it's a little bit more momentum through your deck maybe you can find ways to recoup some of the spent cards if you're doing into the story stuff you're more likely to be willing to burn your early one drop on just disrupting them a little bit so sure. I, I could see that being an approach the only person listed as Demir Rogue's question mark on this list put together by DT Lurch is Seth Manfield. I don't know. I guess maybe he's like hinting at playing rogues, but hasn't yet reveal, revealed a list, which if you're talking about having to build it on a week to week basis, 
maybe you understand why this list was one of the ones that is being played close to the best at this moment. Yeah, I mean, he he just said that he's not playing Omneth. So okay. it, it doesn't necessarily mean Demir. It could also be Rectos, right? Sure. Okay. But yeah, I mean, there's there have been a lot of high-profile players who have you know played with rogues and... I don't know, in, in case of someone like Paulo, right? Like he's written about it a bunch. He's not playing in this tournament, but there are people like of his caliber that have been playing the archetype and trying to tune it and stuff. So it, it won't surprise me to have some of these people show up with it. But yeah, Demir trying to remove a Lucky Clover is just kind of like a non-starter for me. Like I, I do think that you could do things like Duress, but Rakdos even has like Shredded Sails and Shield Breaker. So they have ways to kill it once it's actually in play. Right. And it's... Yeah. it's it's just a huge problem for rogues, for sure. Yeah, brazen borrower counter spell is about it, and, uh, and that's not good. No, that has. Whenever I've said, "Oh, my plan is brazen borrower," there, that means there's no plan. That's the same as not even considering it. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing as wilt to me, where you're trying to board in a one for one answer not even on like a one for one basis where they have four clovers and you have like two wilts or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if they get a use out of the clover and then you wilt it, you're, you know, still neutral in mana, but they've used it to like kill two of your creatures or rampant growth in extra time. And it's, you're, you're like solving that problem, but not really because they already got the advantage and they're going to use that to snowball you, you know? Right. So it's, it's just such a bad solution. And then trying to spend two mana to bounce it and then try and counter it on the way down, it's, it's the same but worse. Yeah, a lot of investment and not a consistent answer. So not the way I would look to go. I, I think that covers everything that we know to be registered right now. Kind of a tight, condensed field. I guess that's not surprising given the restrictions that both Clover and Omnath really place on this format. Yeah, looking looking for Rakdos to maybe have some success like if if they figured out a good plan against either one of these omnath decks then maybe they can do well but it's still your your i don't know your deck's plan is just like pretty bad against their deck's plan right so you're already coming at it from a deficit but i mean if you find a way to kind of like flip that or figure out what actually matters in the matchup then that could be pretty big and then rule adventures just trying to lay the beatdowns on people and they have the tools to interact with Lucky Clover, and then they have a good fast clock. They have creatures that are resilient to a bunch of the different removal spells that people are playing that Emmerichly to finish. Uh, problem is, like you know, sometimes you have mana issues. Sometimes you don't curve well. Mulligans are pretty bad. So it's just you know typical aggro deck problems. But then the rest is just four color adventures and some uh, four color ramp. I guess uh, Kowalski's playing Teamer Adventures, but it's mostly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think classifying them as Clover decks is fine in terms of their impact on the metagame, even if their specific percentages might be different. Yep. And then we move on to Historic. This is not the field I thought I was going to see. Not going to lie. Things have changed dramatically in a very short period of time. Yeah, we just had the Invitational that was a bunch of goblins and... You know, Mono Black Gate was there a little bit. Rakdos Pyromancer was there in small numbers, but did very well. And Luis's uh, Sacrifice Collected Company also looked to be like a, a pretty big favorite from that event. I, I've just played against like that deck more than anything on ladder, I think. So mm-hmm. I would have expected that deck to be far more popular, but 
then people are just like, well, you know, port my standard deck over to historic, add some Yasharns and call it a day. Yeah, two real big prints from this most recent set have just completely turned the field on its head as it stands now. I guess we're around 65% of these reported. Uh, one Goblins player is all we see in this list, Chris Palmati. Uh, only one who's written down as Goblins. And compare that to the Mythic Invitational, that's pretty dramatic. And I, I think that the format we are going to see is going to be one that is still being shaped by Omnath. But we don't even know how good Omnath is right now. That's the question that's really going to be on everyone's mind as everything plays out. Uh, I, like I said, I am convinced this is the future of this format to the extent that I don't think we're going to be doing this stuff for a very long <laughs> period of time. Like Uro and Omnath existing side by side is not a recipe for format health, I promise you. Yeah, I believe that. I don't know, like goblins being on the decline doesn't surprise me because a lot of people showed how you could beat it at the Invitational. Yeah, and it was medium. I think it was a very medium choice for that tournament. Yeah, it was it was like baseline the best deck, but you know there are a lot of ways that you could actually beat it. And now I don't know with everyone playing Omnath decks, I would assume that this is pretty exploitable. But I I don't think the format had enough time for people to get to the point where they're like, oh, mirrors are just going to be everywhere, but. I don't know. There, there were some people who were saying that like it was very obvious that you should register Omnath for Historic. And then at that point, you got to realize that like everyone else is going to come to a lot of the same conclusions. And then maybe you focus on the mirror match a little bit more. But I don't know. We have like Luis's squad playing Saltai with Yasharn. And maybe that's a good answer, at least in, in game ones. What do you think it is specifically about the Saltai deck that might give them some legs in the matchup? Thoughtsies mostly. Yeah. Like I, I played a decent amount of that matchup too, and it, it's it's just like any ramp deck against control, right? Where you have very few threats, and it's it's tough to get anything meaningful to stick and resolve, and it's especially difficult to get anything going when your opponent has thoughtsies. And that was kind of my experience with the matchup, and I had to shift the way that I was doing things and develop a little bit of a better sideboard plan. I mean, a, a lot of the ways that I tried to fight them was through Risen Reef, which surprisingly not a, like no one is playing. Yeah. It's just, it's such a good engine. Like even if you're, I wasn't playing ultimatum uh, mostly because it was like super bad against a lot of the, the stuff out of the control deck, but with ultimatum Risen Reef is even better and Omnath's an elemental. It's not too difficult to like stack up multiple triggers. It's, it's like pretty bad against the, the sacrifice decks and like mayhem devil in general, just because how easy it is to pick off. But if you're like maxing on Yasharn or coming close to it, then I still think it's great. No, that tracks. Uh, we talked a little bit before the show. and Dude, Yasharn's an elemental. That, you're the only person on the planet who knows that. But that's another point in its favor. And there's something there. I, I do agree with you that Risen Reef seems like a very explosive card for this deck to pick up, uh, especially when we look at this field and we see only one Jun deck thus far. So not expecting huge representation from that list. There's not a lot of Mayhem Devils. The one ones are opened up. Speaking of opened up, is there anything that comes to mind that you think was just hard exploited by goblins and couldn't exist while that deck did. And now maybe can find some room to come back into the metagame. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. And when I try to, you know, approach it logically from right now, I, I feel like the same things that goblins might've oppressed are also probably going to get oppressed by like mayhem devil and the Rakdos pyromancer deck. 
So mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. So I guess the thing is that for this conclusion to be true, I also need Mayhem Devil to not be a large part of this format, which for this tournament, it seems like you would be safe. Maybe it's not. Yeah. I mean, again, still a lot of deck lists missing. Right. The the deck that I would propose, which is not a deck I'm a particularly large fan of, but Mono Blue, some kind of tempo strategy that can just fight this these Omnath decks on the stack. Yeah. And I, it just makes sense. Like that's that's what's supposed to exploit a deck like this is a strategy like Mono Blue. And I'm not the biggest fan of that strategy in the historic format, but you think about having access to main deck Aethergust or main deck Mystical Dispute and just not letting Omnath come into play and killing them fairly quickly, that checks out to me. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's something to be said. But again, you have to assume Jund isn't going to be at this tournament. I wouldn't have made that assumption. I would have thought Jund would have been among the top decks. So there's no way I would have taken the plunge and registered Mono Blue here. But again, like you said, Captain Hindsight, it's very easy to pick out these potential weaknesses. Well, it, I mean, it's one of those things where after this tournament, say Omnath does dominate in Historic, and then a lot of people pick it up on Ladder, it's possible that you can sort of exploit that by playing mono blue, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not super relevant for this tournament, but it might be going forward. Sure. And I don't know, looking at like Luis's uh, Saltai plus Yasharn deck, it doesn't have a whole lot of ways of like actually fighting the good fight against mono blue. Like you have Thoughtseize, that's great. And then there are the Typhoons in the sideboard. But other than that, it just looks like mono blue would mostly farm this deck. Yeah, I, I think Mono Blue would be a huge favorite into this tournament. We'll see. There's still some surprise choices. Maybe somebody went off the walls and gets to run over the field. Have, have we talked about every? Oh, I guess we didn't talk about the one. I don't MJ's know. Maybe deck. surprise deck. Uh, hold I on. Guess hold if, on. Let me let me comment comment on one thing first. Uh, Luis Luis is playing 28 lands in both of his decks. That's the perfect number of lands. He's figured it out. That's also my lucky number, by the way. 28. Yeah. Why? Uh, that's my birthday. Okay. October 28th, so 21 days away, if you're thinking oh, wow. about what to get me. Yeah. yeah. Don't get me. Please don't get me anything. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't punish me like that. Well, I'll order you something, but what did no, you- No, don't do that. What did nope. you do on your 28th birthday? I don't know. <laughs> you were asking me to go to a very dark period in my life. <laughs> I was not good at keeping track of, especially on my birthdays. So something uh, debaucherous, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, it all led to where you are now and who you are right. now. So it was, it was worth it. Anyway, right. MJ, uh, if you're watching him stream, I watched a couple of his streams in preparation for this event. And it's, it's kind of funny too, because the streams that I watched of his, it was like playing, you know, stock Rakdos and a little bit of stock Neoform. And the lists he submitted are very much not stock. So he did a lot of work off camera too. And the Neoform combo in historic for those of you who are not aware is to put it on the stack and then copy it with Seagate Stormcaller or dual caster mage. And then that ends up killing your opponent. Yeah. And it's good. If you don't know Ninja, the Nick shared this over on Twitter going back during preview season. Uh, I sat there, read it two to 300 times trying to understand exactly what was going on. Finally figured it out. And then shared it over on Twitter, and it has kind of taken on some life from there. Yo Man played it a bunch, and both players really impressed with the deck. I played it a bunch, really impressed with the deck. And there's some conclusions here that I'm happy to see 
MJ Reach. Uh, I got to the same place with Sphinx of Foresight. I think it's the best four drop. It lets you play, actually play legitimate fair games and just matters a ton when you're looking for specific cards. So I'm excited to see four copies of that card from him. The one that I was not expecting, which now that I see it, uh, kind of on board. You love this card. You love this card. Fave Wishes solves every problem you could ever have. Do you know how big your sideboard is? I think it's so bad. So this is the thing that he did that I I think is just wrong, (laughs) where his his stock list didn't have Fae, and now it does. Here's the concern. Having three Neoforms in the deck and needing to use Fae of Wishes to get the fourth, Like I I get where you're coming from, because this deck needs to find a Neoform. And I can't tell you how many games I've played where I was playing... Augur Bolas, which is like a bad card. Joe Kaha put you the top three cards of your library on the bottom of your deck. Joke's it's, on you. I want to do now. that. No, it, well, it's better now because you have DFCs too. Yep, that matters too. And there is a Valakut Awakening here. But my point is that I needed to find Neoform so desperately that I didn't care that I was putting the top three cards of my deck onto the bottom. Like I just need to get closer to these Neoforms. So if that's what it takes, so be it. And that was the best way I found to do so. Going to Fay of Wishes to try and get your virtual like six copies. I don't know. I mean, you you do play some longer games, so and sometimes you just want a two drop to turn into a three drop, and all this stuff kind of sort of makes sense. But in practice, having less than four neoforms in my deck really frightens me, especially in combination with Sphinx of Foresight, because. I think all of this comes from the same conclusion. Like you have to do this to win games. How do I get deeper? And Sphinx of Foresight is a really good way of doing that. But when you limit its ability to just find a Neoform, I think it's being made a little bit worse. Yeah, I think I think the Fae like tutor package giving you more copies of Neoform would matter more if you were set up to play longer games or had like a good backup plan and the stack doesn't have either. Right. I agree with that. So I... I do think that the field being a huge portion in Obnath means that they're going to have very little interaction. So they're not going to be able to like, you know, kill your creatures or like maybe counter your Neoform or whatever. And they're pretty slow to kill you, which gives you enough time to fay. So it's possible that the added redundancy just solidifies the Omnath matchup to the point where it's worth it. And I don't know, it's like, it's going to be good against things like Saltai. Uh, it's just going to be pretty bad against very fast decks, which it doesn't seem like there are a lot of. So maybe yeah, it this seems is, like a great field for this deck. Yeah, maybe, maybe this is good. Uh, I, I just find it hard to believe that like playing Fae of Wishes is better than just playing like, you know, Opt and more cantrips or whatever. I don't know. Time will tell. What do you, have you played this deck at all, by the way? No, I, I just watched a few people stream it and that's about it. Okay. This is kind of getting into the weeds. I, I was surprised to see three dual caster mage just because I feel like, a lot of times my combo isn't enough to win the game, uh, especially against Omnath. I am probably more concerned about that than I've ever been. Yeah. Opponents just being at 40 life or whatever. Yeah. So I was a little shocked to see that, but also like maybe having access to Fae of Wishes changes things. Maybe having does, access to Terror of, of the Peaks can do something. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Does, does Terror change anything as far as like whatever chains you're trying to pull off? I don't know. No, no, I don't think you can alter your chain. Can you? Unless there's, uh, let me think about it. Is there something you could do with like glass pool mimic? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's altering your chain at all. I, I could be wrong on this. I'm trying to figure this out on the fly, but I'm, I'm not sure that's like a new combo kill. It's weird for it to be there if it's not though. Right. Right. I don't know. I I know that you Neoform and then, you know, copy Neoform, get another dual caster and then Glasspool Mimic. You just end up with a bunch of creatures in play and then you like 
give them haste and combat celebrant to get an extra attack step and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, but that, like, that Neoform is locked on three though. Like there's unless yeah. you have additional Neoforms, you can't get it to four. Yeah. So I don't I don't know what the terror is doing there, and I'm not smart enough to figure it out. And I don't know enough about this deck to figure it out just Agreed. by looking at it. So we'll have to watch the tournament to to get the insight. I don't know. MJ MJ loves like his his like free win button and just like playing powerful cards and stuff like that. And that was kind of too. That was, that was kind of how he defended Terror of the Peaks in the original Rakdos deck, but uh, he did end up cutting it. But I, I really doubt that he would just play like random dragon in this deck too. So I don't know. We're, we're obviously very stupid when someone smart listens to this, point out why this Terror of the Peaks matters. I, I guess you could talk yourself into like, you've now got Sphinx of Insight. So you're playing, like I said, I was able to win some fair games. I also had removal in my deck though. And like, MJ doesn't have any removal, but maybe just ramping into like turn three Sphinx of Foresight, turn four Terror of the Peaks is like, okay, I got there. I win. Big stupid flyers flying over a bunch of ineffectual blockers. I don't know. It's It's got to be something specific that we're missing. Okay. What about Fey of Wishes? Is there a Fey of Wishes backdoor for this dragon? No, not that I can I see. Don't, I don't see it. I really don't. Oh, uh, I guess... Uh, Fae of Wishes can get expansion, which like adds to your combo piece a little bit. Like if you have Neoform, but not the copy mechanic. You have Neoform, but not the copy mechanic. So like if you don't have a Stormcaller or a Dualcaster Mage, right? Yeah. But you have a Neoform, you can Fae for expansion, and expansion is a Dualcaster proxy. Like you Neoform away one of your two drops, you expansion it, get Dualcaster Mage and go off from there. But like you don't need a Dualcaster Mage to start. Okay. You know what I mean? Yes, so, I, so, I think I follow you. Yeah, so Faye is is both halves of the combo. Okay. Well, that, that's a point in its favor. But regardless, I, I still don't think it's very good. Anyway. Are you still thinking about Terror of the Peaks? Is that I am. Point? Yes, sorry. <laughs> Let's move on before I, before I get obsessed with Terror of the Peaks. Dude, it's okay. It's, it's okay. MJ. He can do what he wants. Love it. Uh, anything else we have missed on the historic side? Uh, I mean, we could talk about like the specifics of the Omnath decks, but I, I think that will mostly just be decided by the outcome of the tournament as far as like what version is actually better. But I, I would highly advise people try Risen Reef because if you remember for the brief period that Risen Reef was like really good and just, you know, the Simic ramp decks or whatever, like when your opponent has a Risen Reef and you don't, or, you know, your opponent has two Risen Reefs, they just bury you. And I think it's the same thing here. Oh, this, the snowball in conjunction with Omnath in some instances must be absolutely absurd. I, I I can't imagine how hard you go off in these scenarios now. And if you're still Genesis Ultimatuming, then it seems even stronger. Yeah, I wasn't. I ended up uh, just lowering my curve and playing more retreats just because like, it was also good uh, uh, with Risen Reef and Oracle Moldiah and... It gave me more cheap threats against control instead of seven mana things that got like censored and thought seized. Yeah, this sounds like you just always do that explosive thing that this deck did on, you know, the occasions where it kept Lotus Cobra in play, it could do these things, but mostly needed things to go very right to have the huge games. And I think once you have the redundancy of like Lotus Cobra, Risen Reef, Omnath, you just always get to do it. Yeah. And obviously I kept Escape to the Wilds because that's just going to be the best card no matter what. So Sure. Makes sense. I don't know. I liked my deck. I, th- I thought it was pretty good, pretty solid. And didn't feel like you needed Genesis Ultimatum in Historic. So if, if people want to actually give these lists a try, I would advise trying a strategy like that. 
Nice. Well, ship me that deck list because I would like to give that a try and I will be playing that on Arena. All right. Sounds good. Every week we solicit the fine folks in our Discord for their burning questions. We select one. The winner gets a Arena Deckless enamel pin. And this burning question comes from my Pokemon homie, Olfelvin. And he asked, not about deck lists or anything, but I noticed you've tweeted a few times recently about video games you've been playing. Would love to know what you both have been playing. I don't generally tweet about that stuff, so I'm pretty sure his question's targeted at you. But as, as far as the tweeting aspect, I know they said both. But mm, I tweet about everything because uh, I don't have a particularly developed filter. And often it's a good way to escape the prison of my own mind. So it probably was me. and. I also am playing a lot of video games, which are another excellent way to escape the prison of your own mind. And Word. I've actually been overwhelmed with how many video games there are to play to the point where I'm really not sleeping much anymore, which I don't, I don't know if it's a strategy that I would advise. Uh, I just kind of like collapse at random points throughout the day and take a two-hour nap here and there. And I know that's not the healthiest way to go about things, but have you played video games? Because they're excellent and... There's too many to keep track of. I was playing a ton of Crusader Kings 3. I was just obsessive about it for a few weeks. I don't uh, even know what that is. It, it is. I, I don't even know if I should get into it. It is a historical simulation game that seemed impossibly deep and inaccessible. And you would hear about like these jaw-dropping moments in it that just didn't make any sense how a game could do this. Kind of like how you hear stories about EVE Online. And I, I was just really intrigued by everything going on. Unfortunately, it's tough. It's tough to get your feet wet and you kind of need someone to bring you through it. So actually, Riley Knight reached out to me. I, I tweeted about this as well, how I'd like to learn the game and was unable to. And he came along and was like, well, I know the game and I'm happy to teach you. And we did a little stream together and he did a great job of taking away all of this really, really thick minutia and not understanding where to start. Nice. And then I just got obsessed and played for <laughs> basically a week straight. And I, I probably would still be playing it, except like six incredible games have come out in the meantime. I was playing Wasteland 3 a lot. We play Fall Guys occasionally, which takes up some time. Always got time to fall, man. Yeah, it's just such like a good palate cleanser, like such a light, refreshing game to play. So I always enjoy that. Then recently, we both discovered Genshin Impact, which I, I will let you talk more about because you are deeper than I am. But also, in the last three days, I've developed a crippling team fight tactics addiction, <laughs> which was just the last thing I needed. Like, I really didn't need another game to add to the mix, but uh, I've played a lot over the last three days. And I get it now. I like it. I'm climbing. I've actually hit a higher rank in three days of Teamfight Tactics than I did in six years of League of Legends. Nice. And I, I know they are very different ladders. Like they only really bear a pass, passing similarity to each other. I still thought that was pretty funny though. No, that's that's cool. Uh, what about Hades? I have played Hades as well. So I actually got Hades about a year ago in early access for my computer though. Okay. And for whatever reason, like I, I played it a bit and I'm like, this is dope. I like this, but I didn't really get hooked. This go around, I got it for my Switch, and it is a perfect Switch game. You know, yeah. it's digestible. You play a hit every now and then. So that's basically been my exposure to Hades. Is just when I'm, I need some downtime from the computer gaming, and I have to game in a different space. Usually, when I'm in bed pretending to try and fall asleep, <laughs> then I can play Hades. 
Uh, also, like Spelunky 2 came out, which I've dabbled in a bit. It's just a fun side-scroller that I know a lot of people are crazy about. Like I said, too many video games, uh, which is why I think I haven't gone as deep on Genshin as you have, but another really impressive game. Yeah, my partner told me that her brother was playing this RPG that looked kind of good and that I should maybe check it out. Maybe I would like it. And that was Genshin Impact. And I had never heard of it, which is like kind of a strike because I'm normally paying attention to like what's going on with RPGs and stuff like that. And I don't really like open world games And the thing that changed that for me was mostly Breath of the Wild. And there are a lot of subtle quirks in that game where I was just like, this is not like 100% for me, but this might be the best video game of all time. And I don't know, I I had roommate at the time who also like went pretty deep in Breath of the Wild and that's like more his thing. And like, he definitely loved it. And just like all the people I talked to for the most part, liked it a ton. I know that like you were like lukewarm on it or something, but I was just like, damn, this, this game is very, very good. It does. It hits me like 90% of the way. So I, I went like kind of deep for a little bit and Genshin impact is basically breath of the wild, except it removes like a lot of the frustrating stuff and just like yes. adds a lot of maybe necessary complexity to things like combat. And it's it's more of like a Tales style real time combat RPG than a Zelda game, and that resonates with me a lot more. And I don't know, it's 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 anime skinned, which I'm down with. I know that that's a turnoff for a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people call it Breath of the Waifus, which is very apt. And but it's it's not like, you know, Shadowverse had like very ridiculously looking women. I will say. And this game isn't really about that. So it's, it's like done tastefully. It's, it's like the gameplay is very good. The aesthetic gets me. It adds a lot of RPG elements that I like. Your weapons don't break, etc. And the thing that I don't like about it is that it's a gotcha game. But so far, I mean, I haven't put any money in. And I'm like a pretty good target for stuff like that. Generally, I would say. So... I don't know. I've been enjoying it a lot without having put money in. So I, you know, if if people view that as a turnoff, then just, you know, play without it, I think. But it's weird. I I think you have to explain what a gotcha game is because that's not a term I knew until this game came into my life. Oh, really? Okay. So I'm I'm familiar with the systems in this game because I've tried a a few different like gotcha RPGs for mobile and stuff. And I, they've mostly had me play for like a couple days and then I'm just like, these systems are are heinous and I just uninstall the game. And it's for like IPs that I like and like I want to enjoy your game and I just can't. But uh, it's, it's less impactful in this game than it is in the mobile games. And it's basically just like they give you a slew of characters to start with. And, you know, that's like any normal RPG. And then there are random like story characters that you'll encounter throughout the game, but don't join your party permanently and there are, uh, I don't know, the game has like 20 currencies or whatever, but like... So many currencies. Ultimately, what you're trying to do to unlock characters is you just have to spend one of your currencies to spin a wheel, and you either get like a, a medium weapon, a good weapon, or a character, or a busted character. And the busted character drop rate is 0.6%. 
So it's even lower than a lot of these gotcha games. And like this is this is how these mobile games thrive in Asia is that they just get whales who are willing to spend like, you know, $2,000 to get all of the characters that they want. So it's like very predatory and just very shitty in general. And this game, I, I definitely don't have all the characters. You know, there's over 20 characters or whatever. I have like seven or something, but you know, whatever, I'm fine with it. Yeah, so my past experience with these type of games is that they are basically just addiction simulators wrapped up in a game. Like there's usually not much to the game or right. I think the game is medium at best. Yep. Uh, people are going to bristle when I say this. To me, this is a better Breath of the Wild. Like it's not even I, close. Dude, I think so too. I think so too. And that's a crazy thing to say because people think of Breath of the Wild as one of the all-time games. And from a, from an aesthetic standpoint, I will... 100% concede that Breath of the Wild is cleaner. It has a more focused purpose. It's a pure video game, I guess I would say. But from just a, I enjoy playing this from the way it feels to the way combat works to the way my stupid weapons don't break. Don't get me started on the breaking weapons. I, sw- I swear I will go off. But Brian, it encourages um, you to switch no, weapons and try new things. No, don't care. I, I switch my weapons in this game because I want to try new things because I'm excited to learn how they affect combat, not because I'm forced into it by the most frustrating video game mechanic of all time. I told you I would rant if you gave me a second. But Dude, I, I, I love I, it though. I think this game is incredible and I did not expect it to be incredible. And like you said, whether ultimately I end up against a wall that feels predatory or it seems like it's trying to exploit me and take a bunch of money from me, I will tell you that the free version of this game that you get to play is a world-class top-notch video game. And there's no reason not to play the free version and enjoy it for what it is as a combat thing. Now, the way I look at it, if I reach the point where I have enjoyed it in this fashion, and you know, I've probably played I would say somewhere between 10 and 15 hours at this point. And I expect you're deeper than that and haven't felt at all compelled to put any money into the game. If I reach the point. I've been compelled. You've resisted? (laughs) Yeah, I've, I've resisted. I mean, there's like, there's like a lot of factors going into that, but I, I definitely feel compelled and I, I would definitely warn against like, you know, if you feel like you might be compelled at some point, like just, you know, disable your credit card or whatever from whatever platform you're playing it on. Okay. Um, yeah. It, good, good advice. Keep yourself safe. But yeah, you, you can certainly play the, the free version. Brian, you put in a bunch of hours. I put in probably like double what you have. And I know that there's like an end game kind of wall that you hit where if you want to do the maximum amount of things, like you kind of have to pay for it. And I don't know what's going to happen in that case. I think I'll probably just stop playing you know, and just like wait for new content to come out or whatever. Like that's the other thing is like, it's a full game. The world is huge. And there's like two continents out of seven, you know? So like, they're also just going to be adding to it. And it's, it's just absurd to me. It's yeah. Such a, I mean, it's it's got an MMO tacked on top of breath of the wild somehow. And it also is just like, the level of lore and cutscenes and voice acting and just everything about it from top to bottom, it feels triple A to me. And I, yeah. I play a lot of video games and I feel like I'm pretty adept at noticing the small tweaks. And like, as, like I said, are there some polished things that maybe feels, it feels like Breath of the Wild does better? Absolutely. But for the fact that I just got handed this video game and no one's asking me for any money, it's completely jaw dropping and maybe even like a fundamental shift in how video games will be portrayed to the American market going forward if it finds a lot of success here. Because this is, 
a very uh, Asian influence game. And like you said, in China, in Korea, a lot of those markets, this is a pretty typical way of doing your video games, complete free release, and then rely on gotcha mechanics to make money. And I obviously it exists in the US, but I don't feel like it's hit to the level that this game is starting to hit to. It seems very popular on Twitch, which is where actually I first heard about it when it was just like randomly in the top five games being played. Yeah. Um, and shocking to see it there. But now I understand why it's, it's pretty incredible. No, I mean, the other thing too, is like, there's, there's co-op mode, you know, like you yep. can, you can also just like play with your friends and help them be bosses and stuff like that, which adds like another layer on top of it where it's like, it doesn't really matter, you know, whether you're like an RPG player or, uh, you know, like Zelda or MMO, like there's something in it for like all of those groups of people. And, you know, whether, whether or not you want to spend money, that's, that's up to you. I'm actually still conflicted about it because the game is so good that I want to give them money, but I also right. don't want to encourage them. encourage that behavior in video games going forward because it is super predatory. I guess there's, there's two ways to look at it. I mostly agree with you. I'm sorry if I'm playing devil's advocate about this. But no, no, it's, it's all good, man. Like I, I, I see it. I see it both I, sides. So I, I've had this thought where if there are people out there who have the means to spend $5,000 on this video game and they're happy doing so. And that means that a bunch of people who don't have those means get to play this game for free and enjoy it. Because look, as a kid, I didn't have money and I would have played the same terrible video game to death. Like I put more hours into the NES version of Friday the 13th than any human should be forced to put into any video game. That game is unplayably bad, but it was one of the games I had in part because it was very cheap and my parents could afford to buy it. And so I played it to death. And the idea that someone can finance somebody else playing this game for free sort of appeals to me. I, I like that a little bit. I do now, too. I don't think that's why they're doing it, right. but still, I, if that's one of the unintended consequences, I can deal with that. No, see, the thing that I'm worried about and the reason why they're doing it is because they hook you with, this is a free game that is also very good. And then at right. some point you, you want more. Yeah. You get attracted to like, oh, I want Venti or whatever. And you just like keep re-upping on these transactions, trying to get the thing that you want. And it, it is, it's addicting. And that's the part that's predatory to me is like, I don't want it to prey on the people who don't have the means to be doing stuff I like know. that. And that's, the I know it's a very slippery slope when you're like, okay, let people do the things that make them happy, but these things are harmful. And our world is surrounded by things that we can choose to do that are super harmful. You can go buy cigarettes at the gas, gas station. You can buy lottery tickets while you're there. I mean, you can harm yourself in very diverse ways while you just go around the corner to the 7-Eleven by your house. And we allow that. So should we do that? I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe we should do more to keep people safe from these urges, or maybe we have to assign some level of personal responsibility to them. And I, I think it really depends on how you're going about these things. And it, it does feel like there is a simultaneous commitment to designing an incredible game and a simultaneous commitment to making that game so incredible that you want to just dump a bunch of money into it. And I don't know how to reconcile those two things against each other because they're they feel at odds in a lot of instances. Yep. And that's mostly why I have refrained from giving them money so far. I mean, they have like a, a $5 thing that's like pretty good value. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that I would just like snap off. Uh, I think I did that, that sort of thing for like Teppin or whatever. And I played Teppin for like a week. I was yeah. Just like, oh, I can't tell you how many like bad TCGs I've invested tons of money into on my phone. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, this, this is cool. I'm, I'm glad that you're doing this. I want to throw you some money. And this is the one instance where I've just been like, 
I have not decided whether or not like you deserve my money. And I don't know. It feels uh, like, it feels like a big step. It feels like a step forward in the way these things are made because it is so good. I think that's where your trepidation is coming from. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I don't think that like my $5 or my hundred dollars or whatever is really going to affect whether or not this becomes like the new video game market in the West or not. But I don't know. It's still just like, I want to be on the right side of history. So of course, yeah. You like to have agency over the situation. I get it. I can't fault you for taking that approach at all. And I, I I haven't made any determinations yet. I'll see what happens when I reach the wall. But thus far, I'm just getting to play a free game that I'm really enjoying. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other thing too, is like, how quickly am I going to hit the wall? And like, what's it going to feel like? And I have not had a thing to really sink my time into since like the FF7 remake. Mm -hmm. And these, these things just like, make me feel so good because I'm just like forgetting about all the other shit that's going on in the world and everything. And I, I definitely need something like that. It does get to the point where I'm like, you know, skirking my other responsibilities or skirting whatever. And, but like, you know, I'm, I'm still working. I'm still writing and recording this podcast and everything. Like I'm doing the bare minimum, but the, the rest of my time is just like doom scrolling on Twitter unless I have a video game to occupy me. So I'm very thankful that this thing exists. But at the same time, it's like the wall is going to come at me fast and, and then it's decision time. Then what am I going to do? Well, keep me posted. If you need moral support to hang on to your uh, desires to not support them, you let me know. I'll change your password. We'll keep you safe. From the, the <laughs> no, predatory man, I, I, I appreciate that. And that's what we were doing the first couple of days that we were both playing, right? So like, have you put yeah. money in yet? No. Okay, good. And like that, that was part of it too, where it's like, well, I thought it was going to come so fast. I'm like, this can't be this good. Like they have to get no. money from me right now. No, it's, it's just that good. Uh, I've, I've done a big portion of the stuff and there's still so much left to do. I'm excited. I'm excited to play more. If I can, Put down team fight tactics because you know I love those ladders. Can't get enough laddering. Oh life. yeah, yeah, laddering is great. But I, I mean, this this game is basically like the same thing, right? It's like, oh, I opened a treasure box and this gave me a thing that I could upgrade my equipment with, and you know, it's, you just get like those really small, constant dopamine hits. And how much of this comes from magic? I think that's always going to be the question about Magic's legacy: is like how much of the world as it exists now really owes a huge debt of gratitude to magic. I mean, look at all of these games that are so focused upon the loot box experience. That's booster pack. Yeah. That's, that's where it started. It, it really feels. And I, I know I've seen stuff from Richard Garfield where I, I think he kind of thinks about the monster he created sometimes. Yeah. And I believe that for, for me personally, I he's added a tremendous amount to my life. And like, I don't know what the alternative looks like if things aren't like this. I mean, maybe these industries don't do as well as they have, and they aren't able to make these products that have occupied so much of my time. And you, uh, butterfly effect again. We have no clue where things go, but uh, Magic's legacy in all of this is, is certainly interesting to think about. For what it's worth, I think Asia would have gotten there regardless. Just culturally, you you assume they are more predicated to go that direction? No, I, I think that they are just very smart and think outside the box. And, yeah. you know, it was just like, okay, you know, mobile games are taking off. We should make a mobile game that is attractive to a lot of people. What is a lot of a good way to like, you know, get a lot of people. And I, I think that this would have been a, a fairly natural sure. uh, solution, right? I mean, it's like Clash Royale kind of does the same thing, right? It's like, sure, you get access and they even do it like, 
kind of similarly, but kind of worse where it's like, all right, you have access to this card. Like you finally open one, but now it's just like level one and you still can't play with it. You know? Right. Yeah. Clash felt very pay to win to me and I, I could never get past that. And you know, people say the same thing about magic and that magic doesn't feel at all pay to win to me at this point, but I guess that's just cause I spend it, whatever it takes. <laughs> so when you reach that point, when you've become a whale, nothing is pay to win. Right. It's right. Just- it's just what you do. I mean, magic has a, a barrier to entry, right? Like you can download clash or Genshin or whatever for free and you can like win some games, but eventually you're just going to get bricked by someone who has like higher level stuff than you or whatever. And magic is like, you know, you can, buy 60 magic cards and that's not going to be enough to play like a real deck or whatever you're going to need to spend like 300 dollars or something to get a standard deck. well but arena has changed that right i mean like there's definitely free to play arena players right i mean it might not be the way you want to play the game right like in theory you can play like any of the, the tcgs for free um but right. it's like what are you going to do like grind drafts i mean maybe you don't enjoy draft you know maybe that's not your thing right yeah there's a lot of questions to ask for sure and that that's how I always interacted with all these TCGs. It's like, you know, draft is kind of like whatever, but like, I really just want to play constructed. Right. Yeah. That's why there's a lot of, uh, dead internet TCGs lurking on my phone. Soul forge. What else? I, I'm sure there's a huge list. I could just go down of things. I gave way too much money to, uh, elder scrolls legends was the one elder for scrolls. Yep. I definitely had a bunch of elder scrolls, I guess a bunch of the other ones are all still out there. Um, but I don't, I don't play them anymore. Yeah. But those, those are the ones that I think have, have gone away that I put decent amounts of investment into and just, uh, I, you know, I don't regret it. I got good hours of gameplay from them. It's, it's just weird though. It's a weird feeling to be like, eh, now this thing is gone that I paid for it. Where did, where did it go? I mean, that's the case with like any video game, right? Like you spend X amount of money, you play it, you have your save file still or whatever. You can go back and play it if you wanted to, but there's- Yeah, you could theoretically use it again. Like yeah. you won't, obviously, but- Yeah, I mean, maybe you loan it to someone or something. I don't know, but- Yeah, I, I often do like give away a bunch of my old video games. When I used to get like hard versions of video games, now I just get digital copies. But when I had hard versions, I, I would always just give them away to someone, including the console. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I have like a, a hand-me-down uh, Wii U from my old roommate. I mean, like I, I bought it from him or whatever, but he was definitely just like, I have this thing and I never use it. So Yeah, yeah. there's one of those on my shelf somewhere. I haven't, haven't found someone to give that one to yet. We'll find someone eventually. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if there's a second person out there that also wants a Wii U, I got one for you. <laughs> you, you cornered the market already. I, I wanted to play a certain game and then maybe I ended up playing like a second or third game, but that was it. It was just like the library was not for me, you know? So I I did what I set out to do. I played those games as much as I wanted to. And now I just have this Wii U. Time to give that Wii U a new home. Dude, I'd love to. It's just, it's not doing anything. It's just sitting there. My cats just like bite the cords. That's it. <laughs> Classic cat toy. Maybe that counts as a new home. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, uh, I guess I'm going to finish this article and then maybe get back to playing Genshin. Let's do it. Let's game. Good luck.